Packing the court. It's been a controversial maneuver ever since it was first proposed by FDR. In his attempt to expand the number of justices on the United States Supreme Court so that he could, quote-unquote, pack it with left-leaning justices in order to overcome the then-conservative majority that existed in order to pass more readily his legislation uh, by way of having fewer constitutional challenges to much of what he wanted to do. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another NPO podcast. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please do so by going either to the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, and searching out the NPO podcast and clicking subscribe. In the alternative, you can download the free Podbean app and choose to subscribe to the show that way. Either way, you'll be fully informed. You'll always be notified whenever a new episode is uploaded. You can leave reviews, comments, uh, your thoughts, whatever you'd like to do uh, in terms of feedback regarding the show. We would like as much feedback as possible, particularly of a positive nature, because the more feedback we receive, the faster the show will go. Packing the court has been one of those dreams of those on the left for quite some time. Uh, They've always dreamed of packing the court as a way to control it. Much of the leftist agenda that has been foisted upon the general public in this country has been done so through the judiciary. There is no question that um, things like abortion have a moral question to them. You know, whether or not a, an unborn child stands to be born at the discretion of the mother is a moral point. Uh, and the debate around Roe v. Wade is a conflation of these moral points and these legal points. People who want to have an abortion obviously want to continue to have a right to have an abortion. Uh, But just as people in the Deep South, uh, back in the Jim Crow area, didn't want to serve blacks uh, sandwiches in a cafeteria, felt that that was a right, it was nevertheless morally a wrong point. So if there has been a lag in the cultural apprehension of what is morally correct or incorrect with respect to the court, uh, that's a separate issue. Now, that little analysis I lifted, I have to give due credit to the late William F. Buckley. He first coined that argument. But the point is, much of what we see, gun control, uh, the rights of abortion, uh, the expansion of the rights of abortion over the years, and then some restrictions coming later, the uh, social justice decisions, you know, the busing decisions, um, Brown versus Board of Education, all these things. Look, everyone's entitled to education. Everyone's entitled to a, 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 an equal education. But the notion that equal means that my children have to be bused to the opposite side of town from where I chose to live precisely because I wanted to buy into a neighborhood where there were good schools so that other children from another side of town can be bused to my side of town is a ludicrous way of achieving this. And much of this, these decisions on the part of the court have been social engineering, uh, and this is against the will of the people. The Supreme Court was never intended to be a super legislature. It was intended to merely decide whether things were constitutional or unconstitutional, and that power emanated from the famous Marbury versus Madison decision in 1804, where the court discovered the power of judicial review or created the power of judicial review for itself. And that decision 
forever altered the court. The court now had real power, real teeth. It had the power to declare legislation unconstitutional and thereby usurp the will of the legislature and the will of the people by virtue of their elected representatives. But I suppose usurp would not be an accurate word. I, I use the word usur usurping authority or usurpation of authority to refer to um, unlawful or improper challenges to authority, such as a mutiny on the high seas. The Supreme Court's declaring a law unconstitutional is not challenging the legislative authority of the Congress, nor the will of the people through their elected representatives in Congress. Rather, it is upholding the Constitution, and the Constitution itself is the supreme authority. It is the Constitution which created the court. It is the Constitution which created the Congress. It's the Constitution which creates our entire system of government. And being loyal to that document, the Constitution of the United States is preeminent. Every president swears to uphold the United States Constitution. Every congressperson and senator swears to uphold the Constitution, although we can clearly see that most of them do not. But that is it. The court was created by Article 3 of the Constitution, uh, Constitution and it says in Section 1, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Section 2 states the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. The laws of the United States and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants, etc., etc., now, that part about controversies between two or more states should be very, very interesting to most of you who took a um, not-so-casual interest in the last election. The Supreme Court, by virtue of Section 2, Article 3, is the court of original jurisdiction between ju uh, disputes between the states. And that case, those cases... Uh, where Texas first filed and were joined by other states, challenging that the the votes cast in their states were diluted by fa false and fraudulent votes declared in other states by virtue of the fact that they changed the laws in contradiction to the Constitution um, should have been heard because there's no place else for those states to go but the Supreme Court. But interestingly, the only federal court that is mandated to exist by the Constitution is the Supreme Court. Congress could do away with all other federal courts. Now, what they can't do is eliminate the court. But what they can do is change the character of the court. For a number of years now, over 150 years, the court has consisted of nine justices. And I've argued on this show in the past that nine justices is more than sufficient. 
giving, given that even during the height uh, of its cases in terms of number being heard, I don't think the court ever even heard 200 cases a year. They heard about 150 cases a year on a good year. Now they're closer to 100, maybe not even that. So let's use 100 as a working figure. You've got nine justices on the court. I mean, it's not hard to figure out. It's pretty much more or less 11 cases per justice. You're trying to tell me that over the course of a year, a justice can't work on and decide 11 cases? And let's be honest, it's not the justices who are writing these things anyway. It's their clerks. It's hardly a big workload. They can certainly do it. The import of the cases they decide are far-reaching. Most often, the court decides to engage in a case because it wishes to uh, bring the circuits in line. You have 13 circuits, uh, which oversee the various district courts in the United States, the federal district courts, all of which have been created by Congress. And it could be that in certain cases, or certain procedures or other areas of law, the circuits are misaligned, meaning some circuits are doing it this way, some circuits are doing it that way, perhaps some other circuits are doing it a third way. So the Supreme Court may elect to hear a case that allows them to make a ruling which would effectively bring all the circuits in line so that there's more of unity uh, in the law and not disparate treatment depending on what circuit you're in. So the Supreme Court serves a very unique function. Strangely enough, though, it has become the refuge of the left. Whenever the, the left cannot achieve something by elections, by legislation, they look to impose it upon people by judicial fiat. And these are the people who tell you that the Supreme Court that the Constitution of the United States, which creates that Supreme Court in which the Supreme Court must rule on legislation being in violation of that Constitution, is a living document. And this is the first premise that you have to reject when arguing with these liberals. When they, the minute they say to you, well, do you believe that the Constitution is a living document? If you say yes, you're finished. Because then they'll say, they can, being, being it's a living document, that's just... Lawyers speak for saying it says whatever we want it to say at a given period of time. It's not a living document. It is a fixed, finite document. And as the late great Justice Antonin Scalia said, when you want to in interpret the Constitution, you have to interpret it the way the founding fathers interpreted it. And he was very, very circumspect in the way he went about this process. You look at the plain language of the text. And then, more appropriately, you look at dictionaries that were in existence at the time the text was written to see what the usage of the language was then. Certain terms, certain words meant different things then than they do now. The meanings of certain language and passages have been obscured and changed over time. So you look to get as close to what the original framers were thinking, and then you look to juxtapose any proposed legislation in the present day against those original intentions. Not say to yourself, well, I think that if the founders were alive today, they would say this. You can't think that, you can't say that. The Constitution says what it says, and it means what it means. So preserving the Constitution 
as it was originally framed, is of paramount to the continued viability and survival of this republic. And the guardians of that constitution are the nine justices who sit on the United States Supreme Court. It is no small coincidence, then, that a great deal of controversy is created whenever a seat opens up on those courts, because those justices are vested with an awesome power the minute they're added to that court. Now, when selecting justices to the court, the Senate was given a role of advise and consent. Over the years, that role has almost morphed into a sort of an obstructionist role. Uh, Even Dianne Feinstein admitted some years ago, back during the second Bush administration, that barring some serious infirmity in a nominee, the president gets to pick who he wants. Now, in this latest little drama surrounding the Supreme Court, the Democrats are now threatening to pack the court, and that is to increase the number of justices above nine. Strangely enough, almost amusingly enough, they're the ones who are now accusing Republicans of packing the court, namely President Trump, because he put three justices on. Well, the fact that President Trump had three opportunities to put justices on the Supreme Court does not mean that he packed the court. He did not change the number of justices. It was just his good fortune to get three appointments. Barack Obama uh, had two appointments to the court. George W. Bush had two appointments to the court. Uh, So it's not uncommon for presidents to have multiple appointments to the court. Bill Clinton had two appointments to the court in his eight years. It was extremely unusual, I'll grant you, for um, a president to get three appointments in a single four-year term, but that's the way it shook out. And because it did, you can't credibly accuse that president of attempting to pack the court. What is being attempted now is an overt attempt at packing the court. To wit, President Biden signed an executive order creating a commission on changes to the United States Supreme Court, including whether to expand the number of justices, which is a key goal of leftist members of the Democratic Party, or setting term limits for justices. You see, that's another thing. They want to get term limits so they can consistently get rid of conservative justice and fill it with uh, liberal justices. This is an article from the Epic Times. The order will form the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, comprised of a bipartisan group of experts on the court and the court reform debate, according to a statement from the White House. Now, listen to this bipartisan panel. The panel will consist of former federal judges and lawyers who have been uh, those who have argued in front of the court, as well as advocates for the reform of democratic institutions and the administration of justice. Uh, When you see advocates for the reform of democratic institutions and administrations of justice, read that to mean those people who don't like the way the rules are now because it doesn't favor them and they wish to change it. Um, The expertise represented on the commission includes constitutional law, history, and political science. The panel created by Biden will be led by Bob Bauer, who served as White House counsel for former President Barack Obama. How uh, unbiased and bipartisan do you think he's going to be? Yale Law School professor Christina Rodriguez, who served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Obama administration. How unbiased and bipartisan do you think she will be? For his part, Bob Bauer 
has been a proponent for term limits for Supreme Court justices. In 2005, he wrote for the Washington Post that in our system of government, we normally constrain great power with limits rather than license its indefinite exercise. And that's like a very, very artfully uh, worded phrase to try and justify uh, something that shouldn't be done. The whole reason why these justices were given lifetime appointment in the first place was so that they wouldn't have to run for election and therefore be immune from any political pressure. Now, political pressure is being placed upon them by virtue of this commission. That is to say, right now we have something very interesting going on, which is why I wanted to do this podcast about the Supreme Court, the federal judiciary, and the Constitution. On the one hand, in the House of Representatives, we have the bill H.R. 1. Now, we've spoken about H.R. 1 on this podcast before. It is a bill which is essentially being designed to codify in all 50 states what was done in the six swing states where there was a lot of chicanery in the last election. These things that the state governors and secretary of states did by executive fiat and against the will of the legislature, which is in contradiction to what the Constitution says, changed the election laws in these states, expanding mail-in voting, uh, playing with ID requirements, these ballot drop boxes, all these things, dead people voting, enabled to steal an election. All changes to the voting have to be passed by the legislature, and every state by virtue of the Constitution, gets to determine exactly how they want elections to take place in those states within certain constitutional limits. That's why in certain states, convicted felons are allowed to vote after they leave prison. In other states, they're not allowed to vote, ever, perhaps, whether they're in prison or not. This legislation would change all of that. It would fundamentally change the Constitution in this regard. It would make everything centralized in a unified fashion by the federal government. And that unified fashion, make no mistake about it, is designed to favor the Democratic Party, which is nothing more than the Communist Party of the United States now. No Republican will ever be elected again if that's passed, in addition to a host of other things like allowing politicians to use campaign contributions as um, auxiliary salary. It's a terrible bill. Now, it's my contention, and I've said before, that if this bill were to reach the United States Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court weighs in on it with its current composition, they would have to knock it down as unconstitutional. And even if Justice Roberts, who can never be relied upon, defects from the conservative majority, there would still be a 5-4 decision that would affect that. Now, what can the Democrats do to try and put pressure on the Supreme Court? Well, they can do one thing that the Supreme Court can't do anything about. They can pack the court. They could change the rules to expand the number of court uh, justices to, say, 15, and then add six liberal judges. And therefore, the six-justice and really five-justice conservative majority would be evaporated and simply subsumed into the larger court. And no justice despite the prestige that comes with being a Supreme Court justice. No justice wants to spend the rest of his judicial career writing dissenting opinions against the majority that have no legal effect and no consequence. It would take a very, very dedicated person to do that. Liberals typically do. They hang on as long as they can to try and advance the liberal cause. Conservatives usually just fade away. 
So it's my uh, suspicion that this packing the court idea, whether it has real teeth and they intend to do it or using it as a weapon of intimidation, is being floated at this time in an attempt to set the tone and let the court know you get cute with us and try and do your constitutional duty and strike down H.R. 1, should we be fortunate enough to get it passed in the first place, like you should do because it's in violation of the Constitution, we're going to dilute your vote by simply adding more justices to the court and thereby corrupt the entire court forever. Now, the, the illogic coming out of that old bag from San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi, that we need more justices because there are more people in the country now is so retarded and so against the face of logic that it's not even worthy of response. But I'll make one anyway because I know you want to hear it. What the hell does the number of people have to do with how many justices have to be on the court? I just finished telling you the number of cases they've been hearing over the years has gone down and down and down. They barely hear 100 cases a year. They've got 10, I'm sorry, they've got nine justices on that court. You telling me 11 cases of justice is too much for them? Give me a break. They don't do much anyway. The clerks write all these things. They're just there to sign off on it. They make their sentiments known to the clerk and say, I object to this on these grounds. Flesh it out for me. I'll sign it. Now, some of the younger justices, some of the ones who are more enthused with their role because it's novel to them still, probably do a great deal of writing. I'm sure Amy Coney Barrett will probably write a lot. She's only in her 40s. Ditto for Kavanaugh, Gorsuch. I don't know about some of the others. But the fact of the matter is, we don't need an expanded Supreme Court. The fact of the matter is, For the reasons I mentioned in the beginning, just as I've highlighted other areas where the Democrats have been governing against the will of the people, the overwhelming majority of the American people are against increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court. The number of justices on the Supreme Court has remained this way for 150 years, and even the composition of the court did not prevent it from giving some very, very significant rulings. All these hallmark cases, Brown versus Board of Education, Miranda, these were all done by essentially all white male justices that found it within the logic and reason to come up with these very progressive rulings. So the notion that you need to have minority representation on the court in order to get decisions that affect minority interests is ridiculous. We had Justice Thurgood Marshall was the first black justice on the court. He was put on there because, in spite of being a very learned man, he worked for the NAACP. So that was a big uh, concession to the NAACP in the civil rights era by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, But Clarence Thomas was the second African-American justice on the court. Nobody celebrated his appointment to the court. In fact, they did a character assassination on him in an attempt to keep him off. Why? Because he's conservative. So they don't really care about the color of your skin. They care about your political leanings. So what's going on here is a very, very uh, high-stakes game of hijinks to see who's going to blink first. Is the Supreme Court going to blink and swallow their pride and decide not to weigh in on H.R. 1 if it's passed, or if it is passed, say it's constitutional, in the hopes of retaining their nine-justice configuration? Or are they going to fold like cheap cameras in order to stay on that court, regardless of how much they have to give up in order to do it? Perhaps rendering the institution 
that they so assiduously pursued appointment to, a shell of its former self and no longer worthy of that assiduous pursuit. Stay tuned, more to come. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.